Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Travels hostess. Tonight we have a ladies and gentlemen, it's time for another episode of Serial Killers. Serial Killers. Serial Killers. Serial Killers. With Sierra. Yeah. So, contestant number one, how are you Whee! feeling? I love the fact that I can jam out to my own intro now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just a little stabby stab in the middle. Right, she's doing it. She's I can't see it, but when we go to video, you will the be able to see stab. it. She's practicing. <laughs> I'm not practicing. <laughs> you don't need to practice if you have perfection. Okay, wow. Wow. <laughs> Suddenly, I feel I should be worried. We're alone in the room, Vina. I know. <laughs> and we're on the second floor. Oh, no. <laughs> so tonight, we're going to close out our our paranormal trip to France, France. with a serial killer. You guessed it, with yeah, Sierra. Yeah. <laughs> As if I do anything else. <laughs> right. So who are we talking about tonight? We are talking about a Mr. Henry Landrieu, also known as the Bluebeard. The Bluebeard. Bluebeard. Uh, I guess it's like a nickname that they give to men that mostly murder women. Like, I don't know. It's a term. Well, Bluebeard to me was, I think, Scandinavian or something in the north, Mm -hmm. northern European countries. He was like a king. And he would marry these women and then he would kill them and then he would marry and then he would kill them. Yeah. But he liked eating blueberries. Yeah. Those teeth were... And he was kind of like disgusting, a disgusting human being. Aside oh, from killing <laughs> the women, beheading them or whatever, he would eat the blueberries and they would let the juices just drip onto his nasty ass beard. Which I think that's why they uh, like serial killers that like lure a woman in, like marry me, whatever, and then you know murder them. Right. I think that's why they call them bluebeards now. It's because of that dude. Probably. So. After the original Karen Bluebeard. Yeah. Yeah, okay. (laughs) All right, so Mr. Henry Landrieu was born in Paris in 1869, the son of a furniture stoker and a laundress who were both ardent Catholics. Educated by monks at a Catholic school on the Lye St. Louis, serving as an altar boy at the adjacent church where his parents and elder sister worshipped. By his late teens, Landrieu was graduated to subdeacon, a secular post that involved lighting candles and helping a priest with his vestments. According to his future wife, Marie Catherine, she first set eyes on the young Landrieu at Mass one Sunday in 1887. Landrieu and Marie Catherine's first child, Marie, was born illegitimately in 1891, shortly after Landrieu began three years' obligatory military service in the northern French town of St. Quentin, 
rising from the private to the position of deputy quartermaster. In the autumn of 1893, he returned to Paris and married Marie Catherine, who was already pregnant with her second child, Maurice. See, and I'm going to pause here. So he returned to Paris and married her when she was already pregnant. Right, and he was in the military. And he was in the military. So someone can't do math. Right? Okay. I mean, it's almost like that, uh, oh, what was that? It was a couple years ago. This lady, her husband was in the military, and while he was gone, she got pregnant. And then when he came back from service, he was like, what the hell? Right. And she was like, oh, I went to like a 3D porno, and that got me pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, 3D porno does not get you pregnant. What? Just, no, you were just nasty. <laughs> At least own up to it. Right. The couple had two more children, Suzanne, born in 1896, and Charles, born in 1900. During the 1890s, while his wife worked as a laundress, Landu drifted from one job to the next. He was employed for short periods in Paris as a plumber's accountant, a furniture salesman, and an assistant to a toy maker. In a later newspaper interview, Marie Catherine described Landu as a model husband and father in the early years of their marriage, even though she also told police that he was a skirt chaser from the very beginning. Sounds like a man. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Landry's drift into crime and possible insanity seems to have been associated with his ambition to become a famous inventor. Famous inventor? Inventor. What was he trying to invent? Serial killing? He's way too far along for that one. Okay. They were serial killing people back in the caveman Correct. Days. You missed Jack <laughs> the Ripper by a couple of decades. Shoot. In 1898, he designed a primitive motorbike, which he called the Landru, and then deceived several potential investors into giving him money to build a factory to manufacture it. Having pocketed the money... Landrew vanished. Of course he did. Did he? Did the wife go with him? Or? Nope. Okay. So he left the wife. Yep. Other projects that Landrew began in the late 1890s and early 1900s included a plan for a new suburban railway line west of Paris and an automated children's toy. Meanwhile, he was constantly on the run from police, seeing little of his family and laying low for a year in La Harvey. In 1904, Landrew was finally arrested in Paris after falling on the street as he was running away from a bank he had tried to defraud. Again, homeboy got serial killed. <laughs> like, slasher movied. So he fell on his own accord. Yeah. Because gravity. Yeah, because yeah. gravity and tripped over something invisible, just like all the people do in horror movies. Right. He was remanded in custody at the Sante prison, where he made what appears to have been a fake suicide attempt, slipping his head through a noose made from his bed sheet just as a guard was entering his cell. How convenient. How convenient was examined by Dr. Charles Vallon, one of France's leading criminal psychiatrists, who concluded that Landrieu was on the frontiers of madness, but was not yet insane and was still responsible for his actions. Okay, good. Vallon's diagnosis was confirmed by two other psychiatrists. Vallon was sufficiently concerned by Landrieu's behavior that he warned Marie Catherine to be on guard in the future. Yes. Right? I mean, like, I'm, I'm just saying, if, like... France's, like, most famous psychiatrist is like, your husband's fucking crazy. You better listen. You better leave. Run, take the kids, go somewhere Take all four children and and go. Get out. (laughs) Landrieu was tried and sentenced to two years in jail in the town of France's south of Paris. He was in and out of prison for the next decade. During this period, Landrieu's wife and four children lived in a series of cheap rented apartments in and around Paris. Because, you know... Yeah, just stay with the dude after, again, after the psychiatrist warned you. Right, after the warning was administered. That's a smart idea. 
In 1909, Landrieu attempted to swindle an affluent widow in the northern city of Lyle by posing as a wealthy single businessman and persuading her to hand over her savings in a premarital contract. He was arrested while trying to cash in her investment certificates and sentenced to three years in prison. While he was in jail, his widowed father committed suicide in April 1912 by hanging himself from a tree. Landrieu's wife subsequently claimed that her father-in-law had killed himself, partially in despair at her husband's criminal career. It's entirely possible. It is. I mean, shit, if my kid was doing that, I'd be like, well. And he I was have... not raised that way. Well, one, you wasn't raised that way. Two, my spouse is gone. Three, my kid's a piece of shit. I have nothing left to live for. Right. <laughs> I mean, sad as that is, but it could have been. Right. It is also said that in autumn of 1912, as soon as he was released from prison, Landrew stole around 12,000 francs, or approximately 40,000 in modern-day money, that his father had pointedly left Marie and the four children rather than him. What a fucking asshole. You're stealing from your wife and your kids, homeboy. Who were living in poverty already, sir. Because of you, dick. See, this is why I'm never going to get married. I don't want to deal with that shit. (laughs) Uh... I understand. (laughs) In the winter of 1913 to 1914, Landrieu executed easily the most successful swindle of his career, duping more than a dozen individuals into giving him a total of 35,600 francs to invest in building a fictitious automobile factory. He went on the run in April of 1914 with all of this money, plus most of his father's inheritance just before the police came to arrest him. In late July 1914, he was tried and convicted for the fraud, Taking his previous convictions into account, the court sentenced Landrieu to four years of hard labor, followed by exile for life on the French Pacific island of New Caledonia. So he he had to go do some hard labor? He was supposed to. Oh. He didn't. Okay. <laughs> so these were just petty, like, well, not petty, but, you know, they're not the crimes we're here to talk about. No. Let's get into the murders. You know, I think, uh, side note, I yes. think I recently watched something about that particular, because you're talking, you have to cross the Pacific and go South America for this particular prison. Yes, I believe so. And so you're in, like, South America, you're in the um, equator area mm-hmm. where it's motherfucking hot. Yeah, no, my chunky ass would not survive. Right, but I think this particular, if I remember correctly, this particular prison was like really a horrendous place to go to prison. Yeah. Just not only the location, but the the treatment mm-hmm. and the lack of supplies and stuff there. Oh, yeah. Was pretty horrific. But continue on. Yeah. So we're going to get into what we're all here for. Murder murders. Landrieu had escaped to a village near the town of Chantanilly, just north of Paris, in the company of Jean... How did he escape? He was in jail. So he did the hard labor. And then he was supposed to be exiled. And I'm going to assume on the way. He like, managed to escape. Yeah, wherever they were going to ship him off to, like, I would assume they'd have to, like, get him to the ocean. And Transport him. On him. A boat. Yeah. Right. Okay. So somewhere in between there, he ran. In the company of, I apologize, I don't speak French, Jan Chuchet, a pretty 39-year-old Persian seamstress who had been widowed in 1909. She knew him at the stage as Raymond Dayard, and industrialist from northern France who had promised to marry her and had persuaded her to give up her job making lingerie for a dress shop in Paris. Okay. Of course. 
Chuchette appeared to have hoped that Landrew, alias Dyard, would provide a respectable home for her and her only son, Andre, 17, who was illegitimate. The balance of Chuchette's relationship with Landrew changed completely in early August 1914 when Germany declared war on France. Everything changed, but... Everything. Did he, like... He was in jail. How did he meet her? Who knows? (laughs) I mean, so for some of his... Uh, later victims. He put in ads in newspapers, like that, singles ads. I was going to say, I, I'm trying to recall, we've done a couple episodes where there was, the, I guess you can say the newspaper version of Tinder. Yeah, the singles call like or whatever. heart to heart. So, or Yeah, stuff like that. So, <laughs> they had a lot of different ones. Right. So I'm wondering if he saw her advertisement in the newspaper whilst in prison and begin writing, but I mean... It would surprise me. You can't write a letter to prison without saying prison. Yeah. So this is interesting. Again, it's like, (laughs) how do these people have all the time and money? Right. Because I got bills, folks. Well, again, one, it was way back in the day. Shit was way cheaper than what it is. Two, he stole all that money. And he had the inheritance money. But still... I mean, assuming... That he didn't have it on him when he was arrested. He probably had, like, squirreled it away somewhere. Right. And then when he escaped, went and got it. So, who knows? Okay, so it changes when Germany declares war. Yes. Landrieu failed to make a rendezvous with Tuchette, who had returned to Paris to be with Andre, still living in her old apartment. In despair, Tuchette went back to the house near Chantilly, accompanied by Andre and her brother-in-law, hoping to find him. The house was empty. But she found Landrieu's identity papers inside of a chest, along with various fake documents. The next day, Tuchette visited Landrieu's abandoned apartment in southern Paris, where she discovered that he was a criminal on the run who should have been deported to New Caledonia. Tuchette insisted to her sister and brother-in-law that her engagement with Landrieu was over. But when he reappeared in late August 1914, she resumed their relationship. No. Dumb. No. Meanwhile... She kept a close watch on her patriotic son, Andre, who was desperate to join the army and fight the Germans, even though he was too young to volunteer. Late November of 1914, Tuchette suddenly pulled Andre out of his job at an automobile factory in northwest Paris. At the start of December, Tuchette and Landrieu, posing as Monsieur Tuchette, and Andre moved to a house in Vernolet, a small town by the Seine. Over Christmas, Tuchette wrote to a woman friend in Paris, explaining that it would not be convenient to her for for her to visit Vernlet because of the poor weather. In mid-January, Andre learned that, to his joy that his uh, scheduled recruitment into the army had been brought forward by two years in the summer of 1915. Well, they're at war, so they needed everybody. Oh, yeah. He wrote a letter uh, to a friend in the army on the 20th of January, reporting his good news and another to an uncle a week later. Then Chuchat and Andre disappeared without a trace. No one ever saw them again. Was there insurance policies involved? No. Okay. Landrieu's subsequent murders between 1915 and 1919 were presented chronologically at his trial, creating the false impression that he had met the woman in the order in which he killed them. In fact, one of his known victims had been engaged to the married Landrieu for more than two years before he murdered her, a period during which he killed at least five other women, Another victim had known him for more than a year and a half before she disappeared, while his last known victim, a prostitute, may have first encountered Landrieu as early as 1914. 
So he was a repeat customer. Oh, yeah. It was also taken for granted by the police and the prosecution that he had recorded a total number of victims in his list of 11 names and code names. He had written at the back of a little black notebook, which was discovered immediately after his arrest. This is questionable for several reasons. Landry did not acquire the notebook until the spring of 1915, more than a year after he first met Jan Chuchet, his first known victim. He did not begin to keep detailed notes in the notebook until the summer of 1916, and even then, statements by various witnesses proved beyond doubt that Landry did not record all of his planned and impromptu encounters with women in the later years of the war. Landry claimed that his trial, at his trial that the list was simply an admiramere, Memory to remind him of the clients from whom he had bought furniture as a second-hand dealer. But he wasn't, and it wasn't his career to sell. He was a furniture salesman at one point. Right, but I mean, we're not talking a lengthy time. No. And he'd moved on. Yeah. From furniture sales. Yeah. People be dumb. Or liars. Yeah, he was certainly lying. But based on witness testimony and forensic evidence, it is also almost certain that other known, unknown victims were not recorded by Landrieu on the list. Landrieu's nine known victims, after Jean Arjan and André Chuchet, all lived in Paris. In order of the presumed date of their murder, they were Therese Labadorn Line, aged 46, in June of 1915. Born in Argentina, Therese Laborn Line was a divorced, unemployed widow who was estranged from her only son, a postal clerk, and her daughter-in-law. She met Landrieu either through a Lonely Hearts advertisement he placed on May 1st, 1915, in the Le Journal. Yes, that's what it's called in America, Lonely Hearts. Yes. A mass circulation daily, or through a notice applying for a position as a lady's companion, which she placed in another newspaper. I like how it's... So he's using a lot of different angles here. Oh, yeah. What a fucktard. Yeah, so he like he does his own like Lonely Hearts ad, and then also is like scouring the Lady Companions ads. Right, he's working different angles. I just think it's weird that they call it Lady Companion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, prostitute works both ways, male or female. Just saying. <laughs> call oh, it what it is. Correct. Marie Angelique Julin? Aged 52, August of 1915. She was a widowed retired housekeeper living near Paris's Gare de Lyon who had inherited a substantial sum from her last employer. Gulen answered Landrieu's May 1st, 1915 Lonely Hearts advertisement and believed his story about being the next consul general in Australia in need of a wife to host diplomatic receptions. Oh, Lord. Kai. He's fucking working this shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, he... Obviously, this dude was smooth. He killed, well, known nine women. But all within, like, pretty close proximity to each other. But, I mean, the stories that he's weaving. Oh, I mean, yeah. He's probably sitting at a cafe, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Twirling his mustache. <laughs> right. Helping the Nazis doesn't catch his ass. Out and about on the streets without proper paperwork. And, well, they're not Nazis and Ger- the Germans, okay? Yeah. And the 19-teens. And he's probably, <laughs> like, working up all of these different stories. And scenarios. Correct. To, to 
you know, play yeah. on these women, these unfortunate souls. Writing them down in his little black notebook. Correct. Like his little death note. So he can keep track of which character he's playing with this person. All right. Birth, Eon, Eon. I apologize in advance. Age 55, December of 1915. Originally from La Harvey, Berth Hion scraped, uh, scraped a living as a cleaning woman and had suffered multiple bereavements, losing in turn her husband, her long-term lover, her two illegitimate children, and her beloved illegitimate daughter in childbirth. That's a lot of loss. That is, and she's only 57. That's pretty young. 55. Still young. younger. She met Landrew in the summer of 1915, probably via a second Lonely Hearts advertisement he placed in La Journale. Posing as a businessman, Landrew pretended he was in search of a wife to join him in the pretty colony of Tunisia? Jesus Christ. So, quick question. Is he taking money from them once they're dead? Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. Okay. You, you know, he probably, like, married. Well, it doesn't sound like she has money. So no. maybe he's just doing it for practice and or killing. Yeah, just to get the itch out of the way. Correct. Like, ah, oh, this bitch don't have money, but stab. And then the next so, one will have money. Or this money. unfortunate soul doesn't have any money. I'm going to practice on her. Yes. <laughs> I was just saying it from his point of view. I guess I should have said it with a French accent. <laughs> <laughs> Anna Colombe, aged 44, December of 1916. Anna Cologne was a clever, attractive widow who worked as a typist at an insurance company in Paris and had a string of lovers since the death of her alcoholic, bankrupt husband a decade earlier. Her motive for answering Landrieu's May 1st, 1915 Lonely Hearts advertisement, that's like a year later, was probably that she wanted a stepfather for her illegitimate young daughter, whom she had reportedly placed in the care of nuns in Italy. The little girl was never traced by the police. You know, I'm an illegitimate child... And I'm real glad my mom wasn't just like, I just want another parent for my kid. Just pick some random psychopathic murder killer person. Right. (laughs) But she didn't know. No. But I mean, like, I don't know. Just like picking somebody out of an ad just because you want a second parent for your kid is a little. No. You know, I think Survival was very different than it is yeah. today. Yeah, modern day definitely wouldn't do it. Back in the day, especially like, you know, back then where like women really didn't have many rights. Or options. Or options. Or money. Or money. Or ways to earn money. I mean, because, I mean, if you look at even the list of women that you're talking about now, going back to his first wife, she was a laundry lady. Yeah. There was a seamstress. She's a typist. How much money do you think they're making? Not a whole lot. Correct. Fair. Andre Babele, age 19, April of 1917. Chatty and vivacious Andre Babele was a nanny and possible casual prostitute. The way that's worded. Right, right. Casual prostitute. Just when she felt like it, I suppose. Just when she's hanging out with the boy. (laughs) Or she needed money for a purse that she was eyeing. Whom Landrew picked up one evening while riding in the Paris Metro. Beyblade spent the next 10 days living with Landrew, whom she called Lulu, in a room he rented near Paris's Gare du Nord, and then a further fortnight at his rented house near Gambius, where she had been seen by a local game warden learning to ride a bicycle. He was teaching her? Apparently. See, that's sad. I mean, it's just... 
And she's the youngest one on the list, too. Right, 19? 19. Like, what are you doing hanging out with, like, this, like, 50? Nasty sugar daddy, man. Yeah. And not even, like, really a sugar daddy, because he's probably not spending no money on her. We don't know. But, you know, the other thing, too, is you got to remember, they're fighting a war. They've got a lot of shit going on. There's not many options, because they're all dying in the war. Correct. Fair. Celestine Busion, age 47, September of 1917. Homely, trusting, and semi-literate, Celestine Busion was yet another woman who answered Landrew's May 1st, 1915 Lonely Hearts advertisement in La Journal. Born in southwest France, Busson was a widow who worked as a housekeeper and was lonely after the mobilization of her only son, who was illegitimate. Landrew, alias Georges Fremont, became engaged to Busson immediately, but then put off their marriage for more than two years, pleading lost identity documents and long business trips abroad. Okay. Business trips. Australia. Yeah. Because he's, what, the governor? Right, or something like that, yeah. Of the diplomatic season. And he needs somebody to a dance party or something. Louise Germain, age 38, November of 1917. She was a devout Catholic, working as a dress shop assistant, who answered a Lonely Hearts advertisement Landrew had placed in a conservative newspaper after deciding to divorce her estranged husband. Germain initially refused to sleep with Landrew, alias Lucien Goulet, a refugee from the German-occupied Andres region. He broke her resistance and then took her to Gambias on a one-way train ticket after celebrating Mass with her at the Balsia of Sacré-Choyer in Paris. They massacred that. Anna Marie, or Annette Pascal, age 37, April of 1918. On account of her wide-brimmed hats, Annette Pascal was nicknamed Mem Sombrero by her neighbors on the street near the Paris Lanchette Cemetery where she lived and worked making dresses for a Paris fashion house. Pascal was divorced and childless following the death of her only son in infancy and was looking for a so-called sugar daddy, or VX Monsieur. In September of 1916, when she spotted Landry's Lonely Heart advertisements in the Paris Evening Daily. Well, he just kind of planted that same card or that same advertisement everywhere. Oh, yeah. And, well, some of them are in, like, 1918 or 1917 are answering his ad from, like, 1915. Or 1916 or whatever it was. Right. Like, years later. Right. Like... This is like the Craigslist scenario happening right now. <laughs> Marie Therese Marchandier, age 37. Born in Bordeaux, Marie Therese Manchier was a career prostitute and a familiar sight on the street outside of her apartment on Paris's Rue Saint-Jacques. Yeah, Jacques? Where she liked to walk her two beloved Belgian griffin dogs. At Landrew's trial, the prostitute claimed that he first met the heavenly inebriated Monsieur in October of 1918 after she advertised to sell her furniture. Circumstantial evidence suggested that he may have encountered her several years earlier in the port of Le Harvey or in the provincial town of Barovius. Landrew was able to avoid capture during the war for three principal reasons. One was the war itself, which denuded France's civilian police force as officers of military age were mobilized and sent to the front. And Vernolette, where Landry rented his first house from December of 1914 to August of 1915, there was just one constable for the whole town. And Gambia's, where Landry rented his second house from December of 1915 till his arrest, there was one constable in his early 70s stationed at the village and a single mounted garde in the market town of Hardin four miles away. I mean, that's like... Yeah, in 70? 
back in the early 1914s. They're not the same kind of 70s, 70-year-olds no. we have now. Well, and the whole thing is, it's like, I understand, like, you know, war and you need bodies to fill positions. But leaving one police dude in a whole town? For, at the age of 70, yeah. You know, w- one of our very first serial killers, which the story is absolutely incredible if um, you have not heard it. He got away with so much shit mm-hmm. because, you know, 20 years, 30 years later, the fucking Nazis do roll up. Yeah. And France has got a lot of problems on their hands. And serial killers mm-hmm. kind of fall to the wayside. Yeah. yeah. And they took full advantage of it. I mean, why Absolutely. Not? Absolutely. Secondly, Landrew's wife and four children knew his whereabouts throughout the war, but shielded him from police. Jesus. Landrew's youngest son, Charles, worked as his self-styled apprentice. Oh, Lord. Helping Landrew remove furniture and other possessions from at least five of his known victims' apartments and later acting as his father's chauffeur. Oh, my God. So he's fucking robbing these people at the same time? Yeah. Robbing all their shit, killing them, getting his son yeah, to drive him around. Yeah, he's probably taking all of their monies. Oh, yeah. yeah. His eldest son, Maurice, was mobilized in the summer of 1915 and arrested soon afterwards for various frauds and thefts, including the receipt and sale of valuables from Landrieu that had belonged to his first known victim, Jeanne Chuchette. Following his release from prison, Maurice helped Landrieu concoct a cover story to explain the disappearance of his sixth known victim, Anna Colombe, to one of Anna's friends. Meanwhile, Landrieu's wife lived for most of the war in the northwestern Paris suburb of Cliché, under the false name Fiumet, one of Landrieu's aliases, in an apartment where he was seen coming and going at regular intervals. I wonder if he was supplying her with her money to keep to help keep keep her quiet, probably too. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, again, even without the background of war happening in your neighborhood, yeah, you are just a laundromat lady that wears on your body really fast. Oh, absolutely. Especially after four kids to look after. Mm-hmm. So it's highly probable he was sending her hush-hush money. Oh, yeah. For sure, for sure. But we could be giving them, her, Too them. much credit. Yeah. Landrew's wife forged the signature of his eighth known victim, Celtine Busson, so he could gain access to her bank account, and impersonated his ninth known victim, Louise Jamain, for the same purpose. Lastly, Landrew benefited from the indifference of police officers and village officials to the fate of the women, at a time when hundreds of thousands of young men were losing their lives at the front. It is arguable that Landrieu might never have been arrested without the persistence of another woman who forced the authorities to investigate the suspicious man who rented the Villa Trek outside of Gambius. So he got caught. Because of a woman. Because of a woman. But isn't that ironic? Yes. Marie Lacoste, the younger half-sister of Celestine Busson, was an unmarried housemaid who disliked Landrieu, alias George Fremet, from the moment she first met him at Biasan's apartment in the summer of 1915. Over the next two years, Lacoste began to suspect that Biasan's fiancé was a marriage swindler, out to get his hand on the naive Biasan's savings. Lacoste's suspicion was confirmed during a visit with Biasan to the Villa Trick on August 1917, when Biasan admitted that Fremont had taken charge of her investments. Biasan refused to take Lacoste's advice to enter engagement to Fremont, and the two siblings were scarcely on speaking terms when they returned to Paris. A day later, Landrieu took Busson back to Gambias, traveling on a one-way train ticket. She was never seen again. During the autumn of 1917, Landrieu became increasingly worried that Lacoste might suspect him of Busson's murder. He tried to 
reassure Lacoste that her half-sister was still alive by sending her two fake postcards from Gambius, purportedly signed by Celeste. Lacoste instantly recognized the signatures were forgeries, but having concluded that Landrieu was just a con man, did not take another action. Still worried, Landrieu turned up alone on several occasions at Lacoste's workplace to invite her to dinner with Busan at Busan's apartment in Paris. Oh, it sounds like he was trying to lure her to kill her. Oh, absolutely. Landrieu knew the apartment was empty and almost certainly intend to kill Lacoste there. Absolutely. Each time, Lacoste refused, eventually telling Landrieu to get lost and not come back. Smart woman. Yes. For the next year, Lacoste mentally washed her hands at Busan, deciding that her half-sister was too ashamed about falling into the clutches of a crook to want any further contact between them. In December of 1918, Lacoste received a letter which stirred her to action. Busan's son had been blinded during the war and from his home in southwest France had tried to contact Busan to borrow money, following what he had called a serious accident. She had not replied, prompting the son to ask Lacoste if she could intervene with Busan on his behalf. Lacoste visited Busan's old apartment, where the concierge told her that Busan had not been seen there in the summer of 1917, and that at least one other woman had subsequently spent the night at the address with Fiermont before he paid off the lease. Thoroughly alarmed, Lacoste concluded that Landrieu had probably killed Busan and had been planning to kill her when he invited her to the apartment. She rapidly complied a dossier for the police, noting Landrieu's physical appearance, his known movements with Busan since 1915, the location and design of his house near Gambus, his thefts from Busan's bank accounts, the forged postcards after her disappearance, and his phony invitations to dinner. On January 11, 1919, Lacoste took her dossier to the local police station in Paris, accompanied by a fellow maid called Larie Bonhier, who had seen Landrieu when he had visited the house where they worked. At the station, a police officer told Lacoste that she needed to contact the authorities in Gambius where Busan had vanished. The next day, Lacoste wrote to the mayor of Gambius in her best formal French, forgetting her full stops as she raced on. You have in your commune a house at about 100 meters from the church, which is called Le Maison Trick. The name of the owner, I do not know him, but the house was rented in 1917 to a gentleman around 40 years old who had a long brown beard and who had the name of Monsieur Firmet. Therefore, this gentleman lived in this house for a good part of the summer of 1917 with a woman of about 45 to 50, or more exactly 47, with blue eyes and chestnut hair, medium height. The mayor denied any knowledge of C.S. Busan or a man called Fremont living at the mansion. This claim was short well of the truth, because the mayor recognized the man described accurately by Lacoste by another of Landrieu's aliases, Raoul Dupont. The mayor did, however, put Lacoste in touch with Victorian Paylette, the young sister of Landrieu's sixth known victim, Anna Colombe, who had made the identical inquiry about Colombe in 1917. Lacoste contacted Piat, and after conferring about their separate investigations, they filed two missing person complaints with the prosecutor's office in the department of Cien-Ol-Est, where Gambius was located. By a delusionary route, the case was finally wound their way back to Inspector Jules Bien of the Paris Flying Squad, or the Brigade Mobile. Bellin interviewed Pilat and Lacoste and then plagiarized most of the latter's research for an internal police report in which he falsely took the credit for Landrieu's arrest. Douche. Okay. <laughs> this is not the time, sir. Right? I mean, she did all the legwork. You did nothing, and you're like, I caught this man. Right. I caught the bluebeard. It was me. <laughs> Look at all my hard work that I did not do. Oh, man, I worked so hard on this. Award me. That shit still happens. I do. 
In reality, Landrieu's capture was entirely due to a chance sighting of him on April 11, 1919, by Lacoste's friend, Lamir Bjornhauer, as he was shopping with his mistress, Fernand Cigarette, at a cookery shop on Rue de Vrouille. Monheur tried to follow Landrieu after he left the shop, but fearing he had recognized her, she ran home to tell Lacoste, who phoned Bellin with the news. Bellin retrieved the business card that Landrieu, alias Lucien Goulette, had given to the shop assistant and visited the address indicated 76 Rue de Rochinkhout near the Guard de Nord. However, Bellin only had an arrest warrant for a man called Fiamat, so decided to go home for the night. Oh my fucking god. <laughs> He's all the names don't match up, y'all. Night nights. I mean, the description is spot on. Exactly. I got butter and bread at home. I'm gonna go home for the nest. Fine. On April 12th, at around midday, Bellin returned with two fellow officers and a newly drafted warrant and arrested Landrew, who had just returned home from accosting a woman on the metro. Landrew's villa in Gambia in 1919. From the moment of his arrest, when he refused to confirm his identity, Landrew was a formidably stubborn suspect. During multiple interrogations in 1919 and 1920, he repeatedly protested his innocence, demanding to know why he would have killed the woman when they were his friends. Friends. Answering lonely heart ads. Right. <laughs> multiple. Multiple. Heart. The investigating magistrate, Gabriel Bonin, was initially confident that he could wrap up the case in a matter of days, following discovery on April 29, 1990, of some tiny fragments of charred human bone debris beneath a pile of leaves in Landry's back garden in Gambius. However, this material was more problematic than it first appeared. Gradually, Bonin's inquiry was enmeshed in a series of interlocking, seemingly insolvable puzzles. Dun, dun, dun. So does he think he has more than one victim back there? So he does, but you'll find out why it's a little bit controversial. Okay. In the weeks after Landrieu's arrest, the police gathered overwhelming proof that Landrieu had stolen the financial assets and possessions of the ten missing women on the list in his notebook. Landrieu had kept the booty he had not sold at a garage in Cliché and various storage deposits around Paris, along with the files on dozens of women he had contracted during the war via Lonely Hearts advertisements and matrimonial agencies. Matrimonial what? agencies? Yep. Wow, this guy was really fucking working it. Oh, yeah. What the police lacked was direct evidence of murder, apart from the charred bone debris discovered at Gambius, and under the microscope, these fragments turned out to be a veritable puzzle, according to Dr. Charles Paul, the director of the Paris Police Laboratory. Paul and his colleagues were only able to establish that the debris had come from three or more skeletons. They did not know if the skeletons were female, because there was no pelvic bones, nor could the forensic scientists confirm that the fragments came from three or more of the women who were known to have been vanished at Gambus. So they have these fragments, but they can't obviously link them. Link them DNA style now. I mean, a hundred years later, they're going to be able to. Well, I don't like. Could you even get DNA from just like a bone fragment, or would you have to get the marrow? They would. Ha my assumption is marrow. Yeah, so I don't think they could even. Right. But they might be able. Well, I don't even know if they. You know, you know, you know, it's amazing how they were able to solve certain types of crimes before. Yeah, before all this. We're, I mean, we're, again, we're talking a hundred years ago. Oh yeah. So, and in the nineteen nineteens, about this time, I think the war is actually over. Mm -hmm. so, and but the, I, mean, I think the peace treaty actually gets signed in June of nineteen nineteen. I believe you're correct. 
So, Although Paul avoided speculation in his report on the debris, it was possible that the fragments came from the burnt skeletons of other unknown victims whom Landrieu had killed in the Villa Trick. This possibility was reinforced by the evidence of one witness in particular, an army doctor who had seen Landrieu dumping a heavy package in a pond near Gamas in the late spring or early summer of 1916. Why didn't you report it? Right. That's suspicious activity. That looks like a body he's dumping. I'm going to go have a cigarette. Right, 1916. Three years. You could have saved so many lives, potentially. Right. Dumbass. The doctor did not testify at Landry's trial, pleading illness. Of course. but the, He didn't want to have to answer for his incompetence. Right, shit. But the prosecution acknowledged that his sighting did not fit the timeline of the known disappearances. About six months after the presumed murder of Landry's fifth known fiancé, and six months before the death of the next victim on the charge sheet. To varying degrees, Landrew's wife and four children were all complicit in shielding him from the police during the war and abating his thefts from the missing woman. Fuck yeah, they were. Mm. The unanswered question is whether any, some, or all of them were also complicit in his murders. Well, the youngest might have been. His youngest, Charles, acted as his self-styled apprentice from 1914 to 1919, helping Landrew to clear five of the women's apartments after they vanished. Two days after Landrew's arrest, Charles also admitted assisting his father with unexplained gardening work at Landrieu's house in Verlant in early 1915, around the time that Jeanne and André Chouchette had disappeared. Gardening. Right. I mean, decomposing bodies do make really good fertilizer. Just saying. Sure. Which is why a lot of the times they say if you see a fairy ring, it's because there's probably a body underneath there. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. The dead bodies help mushrooms grow. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, fun little facts to see. <laughs> <laughs> now that's another song for another day. There you go. Fun little facts to see. It's all about murder. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew's eldest son, Maurice, was arrested for swindling and thefts in the autumn of 1915, shortly after his mobilization and tried by court martial. Among the, ver- uh, the valuables in Maurice's possession was jewelry belonging to Jeanne Chouchette, which Landrew had given him. In January of 1917, following his release from a military prison, Maurice assisted his father in creating a cover story to explain the disappearance of the sixth missing woman, Anna Colomb. Landrieu's wife, Marie Catherine, forged at least one of the missing woman's signatures so Landrieu could gain access to his victim's bank savings. Under interrogation, Marie Catherine initially protested her innocence, claiming that her only crime had been to love my husband too much. No. No. She eventually confessed while insisting that she had no idea why Landrieu had asked her to commit the forgery. The complicity of Landrieu's two daughters, Marie and Suzanne, is less certain. Marie disclaimed any knowledge of his activities during the war, even though in August of 1917, she had bid unsuccessfully at a property auction in Gambias on Landrieu's behalf for a house in which he was arrested. Suzanne moved out of the family's apartment in 1916 when she became engaged, but still saw Landrieu at intervals during her visits back home. In December of 1919, the investigating magistrate, Bonin, ordered the arrest of Landrieu's wife and Maurice Landrieu on suspicion of complicity in Landrieu's thefts and frauds. However, Bonin never formally charged them, and in July 1920, they were released from custody in Marie Catherine's case on medical grounds, she had a bad back, and in Maurice's case because, according to Bonin, his continuing detention was not helpful to the investigation. It appears more likely that Bonin decided a jury would struggle to believe that Marie Catherine and Maurice had known nothing about the murders given the clear involvement in Landrieu's thefts. Landrieu was eventually brought to trial in Versailles in November of 1921 after exhausting his appeals against previous convictions. 
Presiding Judge Maurice Gilbert allowed photographers to take pictures during each session, a decision which helped to stroke the sensational atmosphere surrounding the long-awaited trial of the Blue Beard of Gambius. Every day, the newspapers gave saturation coverage of the proceedings, and as the trial progressed and the possibility of Landrieu's acquittal to on the murder charges seemed to increase, the proceedings attracted trains load of spectators from Paris. Well, they don't have porno yet. So. Well, you got to be entertained somehow, I guess. Correct. Celebrities who came to watch Landrieu included the reigning queen of French musical theater, Mr. Gugliette, the actors Marie Chevalier and Chasha Giltry, the writer Rudgard Kipling in Paris to receive an honorary degree, and the novelist Colette, who covered the first session for the newspaper La Matine. By the end of the trial, Gilbert had lost all control of the audience, with as many as 500 spectators crammed inside, double the courtroom's capacity. Landrieu's 43-year-old defense attorney, Vincent de Moro Gaffiri, widely regarded as the most famous trial lawyer in France, privately despised his client and thought he was insane. However, Morrow was also a passionate opponent of the death penalty and did not believe that the prosecution could remotely prove that Landrieu had certainly killed the ten women and one young man on the murder charge sheet. Morrow therefore proposed to offer the jury a bargain. The defense would not contest the multiple charges of theft and fraud, even though Landrieu denied them, which would be enough to send Landrieu for the rest of his life into exile with hard label in French Guiana. He tried that already. Yep, right, and he's doing escaped. An ordeal which would probably kill him before long, giving Landrieu's poor physical health. In constructing this defense, Morrow's chief difficulty was keeping Landrieu under control and preferably silent. Under examination, Landrieu repeatedly made clear that he knew more about the fate of the woman than he was prepared to reveal, obscenely because he had had a sacred compact with them, which he swore him into silence. Okay. Douchebag. Adding to the impression of his guilt, Landrieu argued ludicrously that he had persuaded the woman via Lonely Hearts advertisements as a means to gain access to their furniture, which he had wanted to sell. He's still trying to sell that bullshit. <laughs> you only, are not a furniture seller, sir. I only put in these Lonely Hearts ads so I could steal their furniture and sell it. Does that make sense? He denied that any of them had been his mistresses and insisted that the incriminating list of names in his notebook was merely a record of his clients. Murrow's best chance of saving Landrieu from the guillotine lay in overall weakness of the murder case. As Morrow argued, none of the 157 witnesses on the prosecution's list, only about 120 of whom were called, had any direct evidence for murder. Well, it actually does sound like nobody saw him do it. Yeah. Well, I mean... Obviously, since he did it for so many years. Correct. And and became proficient at it. Yes. All the mothers, sisters, and female friends of the missing woman could produce was proof of Landry's trickery of their loved ones, which the defense did not dispute. Moore ridiculed the incompetence of the police, who had failed to seal Landry's property at Gambus after their first search of the house and gardens, when they had not discovered the bone debris. In Morrow's view, it was possible that the debris had been planted by persons unknown before the second search in order to incriminate Landrieu. The chief prosecuting attorney, Robert Godfroy, a plotting government barrier, struggled from the start of the trial to make any headway with Landrieu or prevent Morrow undermining the credibility of the police and forensic witnesses. I mean, granted, you know, again, police work wasn't the same back in the day as it is now. But why would you not secure the scene? Right. Well, the other thing, too, is, I mean, to some degree, they do kind of bring up a point where the bodies. Exactly. And then, I mean, he, and again, he does kind of bring up the point of, 
the bones weren't there the first time you looked, but they're there the second time, knowing full well that he's under investigation, he's going to burn bones. So, I mean, I'm not trying to, I mean, I'm just saying some things aren't adding up. They needed to get this guy, though. They did. But it's just like, your competency bothers me. (laughs) And it could blow this case. Absolutely. Gilbert, the judge, effectively took over the examination of Landrieu as he was entitled to do under the French judicial system. Yet, while Gilbert scored some palpable hits against Landrieu, in particular regarding the records on his notebook, the consensus among reporters covering the trial was that the outcome would depend on the closing speeches of Godfrey and Morrow. Godfrey was suffering from the flu, forcing him to break off his marathon address on the first day and complete it the following afternoon. He itemized eight proofs from which his new... From which, in his view, demonstrated Landrieu's guilt beyond all doubt. From the one-way train tickets Landrieu had bought the woman on their last known journey to Gambius, to the killer's telltale noting of the hour they had disappeared, the hour of execution. In a brilliant tour de force, Morrow set about demolishing every shred of supposed certainty in the case. Yet even Morrow could not explain away the sinister fact that none of the women had surfaced following Landrieu's arrest. Instead, Morrow fell back on a lurid scenario where Landrieu had been a pimp who had dispatched the women abroad into the white slave trade. Okay. So he's not a killer, but he's a white slave trader? Yeah. Okay. I mean... On top of selling furniture, folks. That's a big fucking stretch. This dude has... He, he wears many hats. Many salesmen's hats. <laughs> to support his argument, Morrow claimed that all of the women had been in some sense of estranged... From their families, an allegation that was demonstrably untrue in several cases and arguable in several others. The jury's verdict, delivered on the evening of November 30th, 1921, after three hours of deliberation, was not straightforward. By a majority of nine to three, they found Landrieu guilty of all 11 murders on the charge sheet. Separately, the judge unanimously convicted Landrieu of all the counts of theft and fraud apart from those concerning a teenage girl who had been destitute. In the mayhem that followed the verdict, Morrow instantly added to the confusion by persuading all 12 jurors to sign Landrieu's pre-drafted appeal for clemency. What? Yeah. What? If the appeal was successful, the sentence would be commuted to transportation with hard labor. However, Landrieu refused to sign the document on the grounds that he was entirely innocent. The tribunal has made a mistake, he told the court before being led back to his cell. I have never killed anyone. This is my final protest. Yeah, your fucking arrogance is going to get you killed, so <laughs> good job, you! Landrew was event- stupidity, sorry. Oh, he's so stupid. Landrew was eventually persuaded by Morrow to sign his clemency appeal, which was rejected by the president, Alexandre Malinrad. Good job, you, Alex. Just before his execution, his final request was for a foot bath. No. No. A foot bath? A foot bath. And it was rejected? It didn't say that it was rejected, but... Jesus. I, d- I don't like feet. I don't like other people's feet. They should feet. be massaging his neck because he's about to meet Madame Guillotine. Hell yes. He was executed by Guillotine just before dawn on February 25th, 1922, outside of the gates of prison St. Pierre in Veracruz. The whole procedure from Landrieu walking out of the prison to his beheading took approximately 20 seconds. That's did quick. He, did he showboat? Oh, it didn't say. But I'm like, did you like run him up to the guillotine? I mean, like 20 seconds? What the hell? Maybe he was ready. Maybe. Landry's corpse was then buried in a marked grave in the nearby Clementry de Gonards, 
Five years later, his remains were disinterred and reburied in an unmarked grave on the same cemetery when his family declined to renew the lease for on the burial site. Well, I don't blame him. I don't either. Landry's severed head eventually found its way to the Museum of Death in Hollywood, California. I want to go there and go look at it. You know, I think, I know there's a Museum of Death in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And I think I knew about the one in Hollywood. But I know we've promoted the one in New Orleans on this podcast. Well, now, listeners, if they want, can go to Hollywood. Right, Bluebeard, the French Bluebeard asshole. Go look at his head. In the 1930s, Landrew's house at Gambus was converted into a restaurant which traded on his notoriety. The house still stands and in 2017 was put up for sale. Landrew's notorious oven, in which he allegedly burnt the remains of his victims, was sold at auction in 1923 to a businessman who wanted to put it on display at the Italian city of Turin beyond French jurisdiction. The Turin authorities banned the exhibition and the oven disappeared from public view, possibly acquired by another private collector. In 1968, a sketch of the oven that Landrieu had drawn during the trial and entrusted to Morrow's deputy counsel was produced by the lawyer's daughter. Beside the oven, Landrieu had written, One can burn anything one wants in there. A remark attributed to him by a woman who had survived a visit to the house. On the back of the sketch, Landrew had written, This demonstrates the stupidity of the witnesses. Nothing happened in front of the wall, but in the house. Right, we were just saying that. Yeah. The meaning of Landrew's statement remains unknown. Mm. This fucking guy. Ugh. Just took advantage of all these poor women. Yes. Repeatedly. And these are just the ones we know about. Yeah. This is not even... Uh. And they only found him out because he wrote on his little black book. Yeah, and he only had like 11 names on there. Right, and there and, were more. Yeah, it even stated that there was a great possibility that he had more victims that he just didn't write about. Right. Not sponge-worthy, I guess. Not. Shoot. Okay, wow. Talk about serial killers with Sierra. Murder, 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 murder. <laughs> All right, so that is what we have for you tonight. On to business. Facebook, 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 where the Dark Corners are, has a Facebook page. So, you know, if you like to come share some creepy things, look at some creepy things, send us a request over onto that Facebook page. And if you have a topic or a serial killer that you want Sierra to cover, yes. or Spooky Town you want us to talk about, mm-hmm. send us an email at where the Dark Corners are at gmail.com. Final thoughts? This dude is messed up. Fuck yeah. Just took advantage of people. That's terrible. Absolutely. Took advantage of women. Right? Women who were lonely and hoping for something better. Well, other than, like, if you really stop and think about it, a lot of these women had kids. And a lot of them were, like, either the husbands were dead or, or they were strange or illegitimate. So how many orphans did this dude make? Correct. Like an asshole. Right. You're right. Right? Okay. Terrible. All right. So until next time, please remember, only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why we... Hope to meet you where the dark corners are.